We pray now, Father, for, for your word to do its part. And we know that it works perfectly every time. Lord, if, if we don't hear your word and respond and obey, it's not your word's fault, it's our own ears, our own hearts. Help us to have a right attitude as we approach your word. Father, we pray in the spirit of Psalm 119, 130, that you would unfold light to us in the scriptures. We know that the unfolding of your words gives light, and it imparts understanding to the simple. So we pray now for your blessing on preaching, and we pray, Lord, that we would understand how to apply it. And Father, I specifically pray for any in this room who are not familiar with the gospel and not familiar with church, that you would powerfully speak to them today by your verses, by your word. Help us now, Lord, in Christ's name, amen. Amen. Think back to that time in life when you were getting your driver's license. Were you timid and frightful behind the wheel or bold and confident? Now look to the person next to you and tell them what kind of driver you were. Go ahead. Everybody tell each other. All right, let's rein it back in. Rein it back in. So you don't have to show by show of hands, but if anyone said that they were kind of a bold and confident driver and not timid, let me tell you what happened starting in the 1950s to humble you and take some of the naive bliss out of young drivers who were careless. Let me tell you what happened. And this is an on-ramp to our sermon today. In the 1950s, this is when the tactic of driver's ed scare videos were produced. I don't know if any of you know what these are. Um, I don't know if you've watched one or heard of these. There are several in our congregation who would have seen these in school and in driver's ed. Um, in an article, BBC article by Matthew Phoenix, he says this, quote, In 1958, an accountant from the U.S. state of Ohio named Richard Wayman hatched an idea to improve the behavior of young motorists by presenting in blood-soaked color the sickening outcomes of bad driving. Armed with a police band radio and a handheld movie camera, the amateur documentarian prowled the night in search of automotive carnage, and he found plenty. End quote. Richard Wayman developed this film called Signal 30, and he called it Signal 30 because that was the Highway State Patrol in the state of Ohio, their code for a fatal wreck, Signal 30. And in this video, Signal 30, Richard Wayman presents actual footage from accident scenes, footage that's still viewable today, and it's still as shocking. In the film, the narrator asks this rhetorically in the film. We are cruel, cold, and harsh, you say? The narrator continues, you shouldn't be made to see and hear this, you say? But how could we give a better lesson on carelessness? The 28-minute film was perfect for driver's ed classrooms because it left time, as this uh, Matthew Phoenix says, left time for shaken contemplation right after new drivers would see it. I didn't watch the film Signal 30, but I did see freeze frames of it online trying to gather some information. And just the freeze frames alone made me stare. Is that really what I'm looking at? And when it was, just wanting to turn my face away, being repulsed 
at real car wrecks and what happens to the human body on impact. That's the same kind of effect, feeling repulsed and wanting to look away. That's the same kind of effect that certain parts of God's Word have on us when we first encounter it, namely, a passage like we have today in the book of Judges. So I want to give you fair warning that if you're the type of person that looks away at a car wreck, you can't even look at it, um, this is going to be a hard passage for you. But rather than summarize some of these difficult parts of God's Word, I want to encourage you to read along with me Judges chapter 17, 18, and 19. So go ahead and turn in your scriptures. If you're using the Bibles under the, the pews, under the seats, this is page 216. 216. But we're going to read 17, 18, and 19. And 19, the second half of 19 in particular, is very graphic. But one of the reasons uh, I want to say we're not going to just simply summarize this and move on is to use the car wreck analogy. If I told you there was a really, really, really bad car wreck on I-35, I could try to say some of the details and you would get it and go on. But if you were stuck in standstill traffic and had to go by it slowly and see it, you would leave that car wreck telling friends and family, I can't believe what I just saw. This was, this was crazy. It would have a different effect on you to actually have to see the details than just to hear a wreck happen. And I believe if we just summarize this part of God's word, we'll actually lose some of the intended effect of it. And I also know for some of you, I would like to think that everyone reads the passages before they hear the preaching on it, but I know that some of you don't. I know that there's some of you here, and you don't have to be ashamed of this, there are some of you here who've, who've never read this part of the scripture ever. And so I consider it a privilege to now set before you what God has said, and then try to exposit and press into your life his intention and purpose for it. So we're not trying to just be entertained or shocked for no purpose today. We're trying to see what God has said and how we're supposed to live in light of it. So all that introduction to say, let's read in its entirety Judges 17, 18, and 19. Follow along with me. Judges 17, verse 1. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah, and he said to his mother, The eleven hundred pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse, and also spoke it in my ears, behold, this silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored the eleven hundred pieces of silver to his mother, and his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now there was a young man of Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. 
And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, Where do you come from? He said to him, I'm a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah, and I am going to sojourn where I may find a place. Micah said to him, Stay with me. Be to me a father and a priest. I will give you ten pieces of silver a year and a suit of clothes and your living. And the Levite went in. And the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest and was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me, because I have a Levite as priest. In those days there was no king in Israel. And in those days the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. For until then no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. So the people of Dan sent five able men from the whole number of their tribe, from Zorah and Eshtaol, to spy out the land and to explore it. And they said to them, Go and explore the land. And they came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, and lodged there. When they were by the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. And they turned aside and said to him, Who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What's your business here? He said to them, This is how Micah dealt with me. He has hired me. I have become his priest. They said to him, Inquire of God, please, that we may know whether the journey on which we are setting out will succeed. The priest said to them, Go in peace. The journey on which you go is under the eye of the Lord. Then the five men departed and came to Laish and saw the people who were there, how they lived in security after the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and unsuspecting, lacking nothing that is in the earth and possessing wealth, and how they were far from the Sidonians and had no dealings with anyone. And when they came to their brothers at Zorah and Eshtaol, their brothers said to them, What do you report? They said, Arise, let us go up against them, for we have seen the land, and behold, it is very good. Will you do nothing? Do not be slow to go, to enter in and possess the land. As soon as you go, you will come to an unsuspecting people. The land is spacious, for God has given it into your hands a place where there's no lack of anything that is in the whole earth. So 600 men of the tribe of Dan, armed with weapons of war, set out from Zorah and Eshtaol and went up and encamped at Kiriath-Jerim in Judah. On this account, that place is called Mahane-Dan to this day. Behold, it is west of Kiriath-Jerim. And they passed on from there to the hill country of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah. Then the five men who had gone to scout out the country of Laish said to their brothers, do you know that in these houses there are an ephod, household gods, a carved image, and a metal image? Now, therefore, consider what you will do. And they turned aside there and came to the house of the young Levite at the home of Micah and asked him about his welfare. Now the 600 men of the Danites, armed with their weapons of war, stood by the entrance of the gate. And the five men who had gone to scout out the land went up and entered and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, while the priest stood by the entrance of the gate with the 600 men armed with weapons of war. And when these went into Micah's house and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, the priest said to them, What are you doing? They said to him, Keep quiet. Put your hand on your mouth and come with us. Be to us a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be priest to the house of one man or to be priest to a tribe 
and clan in Israel. And the priest's heart was glad. He took the ephod and the household gods and the carved image and went along with the people. So they turned and departed, putting the little ones and the livestock and the goods in front of them. When they had gone a distance from the home of Micah, the men who were in the houses near Micah's house were called out. They overtook the people of Dan, and they shouted to the people of Dan, who turned around and said to Micah, What is the matter with you, that you come with such a company? And he said, You take my gods that I made and the priest and go away, and what have I left? How then do you ask me, What is the matter with you? And the people of Dan said to him, Do not let your voice be heard among us, lest angry fellows fall upon you, and you lose your life with the lives of your household. Then the people of Dan went their way, and when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and went back to his home. But the people of Dan took what Micah had made, and the priest who belonged to him, and they came to Laish, to a people quiet and unsuspecting, and struck them with the edge of the sword, and burned the city with fire. And there was no deliverer, because it was far from Sidon, and they had no dealings with anyone. It was in the valley that belongs to Beth Rehob. Then they rebuilt the city and lived in it. They named the city Dan, after the name of Dan, their ancestor, who was born to Israel. But the name of the city was Laish at first. And the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves, and Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites, until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up Micah's carved image that he made, as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. In those days when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. And his concubine was unfaithful to him, and she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah, and was there some four months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. He had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys. She brought him into her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. And his father-in-law, the girl's father, made him stay. And he remained with him three days. So they ate and drank and spent the night there. On the fourth day, they arose early in the morning. And he prepared to go. But the girl's father said to his son-in-law, Strengthen your heart with a morsel of bread. After that you may go. So the two of them sat and ate and drank together. The girl's father said to the man, Be pleased to spend the night and let your heart be merry. And when the man rose up to go, his father-in-law pressed him till he spent the night there again. And on the fifth day he rose early in the morning to depart. And the girl's father said, Strengthen your heart. Wait until the day declines. So they ate, both of them. And when the man and his concubine and his servant rose up to depart, his father-in-law, the girl's father, said to him, Behold, now the day has waned toward evening. Please spend the night. Behold, the day draws to its close. Lodge here. Let your heart be merry. Tomorrow you shall arise early in the morning for your journey and go home. But the man would not spend the night. He rose up and departed and arrived opposite Jabus, that is Jerusalem. He had with him a couple of saddled donkeys, and his concubine was with him. When they were near Jabus, the day was nearly over. The servant said to his master, Come now, let us turn aside to the city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. And his master said to him, We will not turn aside to the city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we will pass on to Gibeah. He said to his young man, Come and let us draw near to one of these places and spend the night at Gibeah 
or at Ramah. So they passed on and went their way. And the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. And they turned aside there to go in and spend the night at Gibeah. And he went in and sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took them into his house to spend the night. Behold, an old man was coming from his work in the field at evening. The man was from the hill country of Ephraim. He was sojourning in Gibeah. The men of the place were Benjaminites. And he lifted up his eyes and saw the traveler in the open square of the city. The old man said, Where are you going? Where do you come from? And he said, We are passing from Bethlehem and Judah to the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, from which I come. I went to Bethlehem and Judah, and I am going to the house of the Lord. But no one has taken me into his house. We have straw and feed for our donkeys with bread and wine for me and your female servant and the young man with your servants. There's no lack of anything. And the old man said, Peace be to you. I will care for all your wants. Only do not spend the night in the square. So we brought him into his house and gave the donkeys feed, and they washed their feet and ate and drank. As they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of his house, Bring out the man who came into your house, that we may know him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. And her master rose up in the morning. And when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, Get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey, and the man rose up and went to his home. And when he entered his house, he took a knife, and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into twelve pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, Such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel come up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. Why in the world would God show us that? Why would we read something like that in church? Why would we read something so long? Just like it feels pretty inconvenient to sit in a long line of traffic till you get up right near where a car car wreck has happened and then you pass on and then you start going fast again. That posture is what we have to take to this chapter, chapters in the scripture. This is a complete train wreck. This is a car wreck of graphic detail. If you're familiar with the book of Judges, the book's already strange and earthy. God keeps raising up these strange means of deliverance, these strange judges. All the while, God's people are sinning. But every time they sin, he's gracious. Why didn't God just stop and end the whole book of Judges at chapter 16 when we close the curtain on Samson's life? Why, did, why does he give us what we just read? Perhaps it's because the author is trying to teach us not just how gracious God is throughout the book, 
over and over again through 12 different judges. There's a dual parallel purpose in the book of Judges, and that is God wants you and me to see how ugly and perverted and stained and debased and broken and chaotic and damaging and ruthless and heartless and filthy sin really is. And even if you feel like you've never committed these sins that we just read about, God still has something to share with you today. And even if, because of our culture today, your heart is kind of desensitized to what you read here, and it doesn't even really seem that shocking to read this, I pray that you would consider it deeply enough to where it would shock you, and that God would maybe soften some of the calloused areas of your heart that keep you from being shocked here. God's showing us this because just like those driver's ed scare videos, sometimes the only way to wake us up to the gravity and danger of something is to show what can happen if we don't take it seriously. Just as a fair disclaimer, the sermon will be short because the passage was long. You don't need to worry about the length, but you do need to worry about taking some notes. There's two main ideas you've got to get down, you've got to take to heart. Here's what they are. Big idea number one, it's a warning. It's a type of warning. Here it is. Doing right in your own eyes corrupts your worship. Doing right in your own eyes corrupts your worship. The second big idea that we we take right from these passages is this. It's another warning. Warning number two. Doing right in your own eyes corrupts your morality. Doing right in your own eyes corrupts your morality. And by corruption, I mean that deterioration, that unholiness, that which is contrary to God's law and character. Consider that the Bible's greatest command, you know this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. All of our life is meant to be worship towards God. Here we see how our worship is corrupted. And the second greatest command, to love your neighbor as yourself, gets lived out in our moral choices and actions with others. And here we see doing right in our own eyes corrupts our morality. In other words, these chapters show us, here's how you can totally make a mess of the first and second greatest commandments in all the scripture. It's if you start doing things right in your own eyes. So this is very applicable to us today. It teaches us about sin. If you're new to hearing that word sin, sin just simply means this. It's any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act or attitude or even in our nature. Sin is always in relation to God's law and his moral character. What I hope to do in just a few moments is show you what is it about sin and doing right in our own eyes corrupts our worship. Because you may be sitting here thinking, I've sung the songs today and my heart was pretty much in it. And, you know, I followed along in the bulletin. I'm, I'm listening to the preacher now. You might be thinking, My worship's not really corrupted, is it? I'm not doing this. 
But I hope that by looking at how worship has been corrupted here, it will give you a template to then put on your own life and see maybe there are some ways that your worship of God is coming out of what's right in your own eyes and not according to his way, his character. And the same with your morality. Many of you in this room would say, yes, some of these bad things, I know other people who do them. Or some of you might even say, you know what, I used to do that, but I don't do any of that anymore. No matter what you think about yourself, that simple truth, doing what's right in your own eyes, will corrupt your morality. I want to show you how you might be deceived, even today, into thinking that you're okay. I want to do this quickly, so if you want to jot these down, a few points here. A few points. Under our worship being corrupted, there's, there's two ideas you've got to see from this passage. The first is this. Doing right in your own eyes corrupts your worship in that it leads you to worship God on your own terms. The other sub-point in this section would be doing right in your own eyes corrupts your worship because it leads you to worship creature, created things, instead of creator. Now, we may point the finger at Micah here and say, wow, this guy got so many things wrong because he's worshiping on his own terms. But before you point the finger at him, just hang on a moment because we need to point it right back at ourselves. So look with me. Put your eyes back on chapter 17, verse 3. 17, verse 3. His mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. And then glance over at verse 13. Now I know the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. Can you see how in both of those verses, somebody took their own preferences, their own opinions, and just slapped God's name on top of it and said, that's why it's okay. They just put this little glossy veneer of God's name over what they just want to do out of their own opinions. God has no dealings with carved images. That's the second command, the Ten Commandments. A Levite as a priest? Well, yeah, there's nothing wrong with that except for the fact that it's a priest in a guy's own house, his own personal hired priest. God's not going to bless that. Because Micah is doing what's right in his own eyes and his mother is doing what's right in her own eyes and they're putting God's name on their preferences, they're corrupting their worship. They're doing things God has not authorized or commanded them to do. Another way they're worshiping on their own terms is that they worship out of comfort and convenience. Did you notice verses 4 and 5, the location of verses 4 and 5? Chapter 17, 4 and 5. The end of verse 4 says, and it was in the house of Micah. Verse 5 mentions household gods. His priest was one of his own sons. Wow, that's convenient. Worship God without even leaving the comfort of your own home. No need to gather with his people. No need to be inconvenienced. It's striking also to consider the way this chapter opens where Micah's a man of the hill country, and you don't have to turn there, but in chapter 18, verse 31, it says, the house of God was at Shiloh. Add those two statements together. The house of God was at Shiloh. This man Micah and all the stuff he's doing is in the hill country of Ephraim. Where's the house of God at Shiloh? Shiloh is located right there in the hill country of Ephraim. 
This guy has no excuse. Another way he starts to worship on his own terms is he leverages his own energy, time, and resources for his own agenda. We see this in verse 5 and verse 10. Verse 5 tells us, put your eyes there, verse 5. The man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and household gods. The shrine, he set up a little house of worship. The ephod, that was that vest that the priest would wear as they ministered to God's behalf. So he's leveraging his time and energy and resources to make kind of a mock set up play church scenario. But he thinks it's okay because he's trying to get all the pieces right. And then in verse 10, he's leveraging his time, energy, and resources for his own agenda. He says to the Levite, stay with me, be my priest. I'll give you 10 pieces of silver a year, a suit of clothes and your own living. I'll give you a sweet house, a fat salary, I'll make sure you've got everything you need, the food you want. Stay with me. How could he say no? And then there's one other way, though, he's worshiping on his own terms. And we see this really in verse 11, but it's it's there in verse 5 again. Verse 5, where his own son is ordained as priest. That's pretty quickly showing us there's going to be no authority in that family. Because if the priest is saying, Dad, you're doing something wrong, he can always say, well, who helped you be born, son? Who gave you a place to stay? Who made you a priest? It was me. He wants to stay in authority. But we see this most clearly, though, in verse 11. Because after he says, stay with me and be to me a father and a priest, did you notice that language in verse 11? That's the terms of a father and a priest, a term of authority. Be a father in my life. Have spiritual care and protection and authority in my life. Be a father and a priest. But verse 11 goes on to say, notice that, verse 11 says, the young man became like one of his sons. There's not real spiritual authority this guy is submitting to. He sees this young guy, I can, I can make him like one of my sons. So in all of this, we see somebody worshiping God on their own terms. But it gets worse. Because the worship is corrupted beyond just his own terms. It leads to worshiping creature, not the creator. We see this in verse 4 and 5 again, all these household gods, the carved image. The carved image wasn't something that fell out of the sky that they could all worship. This came from something out of the sky. This is magical. Notice where it came from. Look look at verse 4. The mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith. This was made by a silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. This just means, yes, there were things carved out of wood. Sometimes they were overlaid with metal or gold. There's metal images and carved images. That's what this is getting at. Created things, period. An ephod, household gods. He's worshiping created things. But even worse than that, He's worshiping created things, so he's not having communion with the Creator. There's not a verse I can point to to prove that point where a verse says, you know what, Micah was not communing with his Creator. Do you know how we know that from the text? Verse 6 says everyone was doing what's right in their own eyes. And in all those verses, verses 1 through 6, nowhere does it say Micah feared the Lord. Nowhere. The words that are missing are he feared the Lord or he had reverence for the Lord or he had holiness or he walked with God or he pleased God. 
Nowhere do you read that in these verses. Why? Because he is worshiping created things. What are we to make of all this? Well, let me ask you a question that this text has been riveting on my heart this week, and it should be on yours. And here's the question. Who told you the right way to worship God? Who told you the right way you're supposed to worship God? Did you just listen to some pastors and take their word for it and you didn't check the scriptures? Was it a grandmother? Was it a sweet person in your family tree who said worship God this way and you just went with it? Was it somebody in another faith? Was it some preacher online? Was it a video on TV? This isn't to say that other people can't help teach us how to worship God. It's to say, unless we check it according to God's word, we are guilty of doing the same thing this guy did here. We're just worshiping according to what's right in our own eyes. Well, I trust that guy. That seems right. Okay. Evaluate your worship, brothers and sisters. Sincerity is not the final measure of faithfulness to God. Micah is really sincere in making all these things and putting time and effort into it. He's so sincere that he would have a worship set up right in his home. But it's faithfulness, it's holiness, it's obedience to the scriptures that determines whether or not God's pleased with our worship, not just how sincere we are or how much energy we put into it or how slick and nice it looks. This is why at this church, we can praise God that we preach expositionally. We don't come here and just say whatever we want and think, you can do that to worship God. We take whatever is in the scriptures and hold it out to you. I would encourage you, if you're looking for a church or if you're about to move to a new city and leave this place, don't just go with whatever's right in your own eyes. You know what? I just want to find the perfect worship that strokes my fur. Look for a church that does things according to God's word. If I was making a commentary on this section of scripture, I would have listed every Ten Commandment that gets broken. Because by the end of the book, they're all getting broken. Five commandments are broken in the first six verses. We can't get there soon enough when it says everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. But we today, we don't think we would ever be worshiping God in the wrong way, right? I mean, we're at a pretty orthodox church that is intentional. Well, let me ask you, when you worship the Lord during the week, how do you know what you're supposed to be doing with the Bible? Answer, the Bible tells you what to do with the Bible. It says to meditate on it day and night. It says in Luke 24 to let all the scriptures point you to Christ and the gospel. It doesn't say grab a verse that will just make you feel good, go to work and just feel good, but don't ever think about Jesus, just think positive thoughts. It doesn't say, you know what, you don't really need to read this and study it and meditate on it and let it dwell in your heart richly. You just need to get a little devotional that can set in your bathroom and set on a little rack that you can read each day that has a few verses and you can be content to never read the rest of the scriptures but just keep reading those same few, few verses. Can you see how that might corrupt your worship? I'm not saying that if you read a devotional that has a verse, that's somehow wrong. I'm saying, who told you that that's all you need? God tells us all Scripture is breathed out by him. All of it. Continually take your worship practices, bring it back to the Scriptures, and ask yourself, is this what God wants of me? 
I know many Christians who beat themselves up that somehow they don't read enough each morning. Who told you how much you're supposed to read when you worship God? Point to me and show me the verse that says how much quantity of Scripture you have to take in. Take the guilt off. If you're not doing well in a Bible reading plan, okay. What did Jesus do each morning? He got time with the Father to pray. And he didn't have a personal pocket Bible that he pulled out to read under the early sunlight in Palestine. He had Scripture memorized. He prayed with the Father. He communed with the Lord. So the most shocking thing in this first part of what Micah is doing is he's not communing with God. As J.I. Packer said about the Puritans, this was in the Sunday school class this morning, the Puritans are great because so often they talk about communion with God in a way that we don't want to talk about it. He says the measure of our concern, quote, is the little we say about communion with God. When Christians meet, they talk to each other about their Christian work, their Christian interest, their Christian acquaintances, the state of churches and problems and theology, but rarely of their daily experience with God. I praise God for moments when I'm here in the office and I call one of you as members. I'm not afraid to put a name on it. I will. Johnny Davis. I'll call somebody like Johnny Davis and she'll tell me what sweet fellowship she was having with the Lord while reading Systematic Theology and the verses that were in that book. How she was talking with the Lord. How the Lord was teaching her or reminding her of things. Are you the type of person that tells others about your communion with God? Not just religious activities that you've done? Micah could have been able to tell any of his buddies, I've been worshiping the God, God all the time. But what he wouldn't have been able to say is, God is pleased with me, I'm communing with him, I'm conforming my character to his will, I'm growing in holiness, I'm killing sin. None of that. His worship is corrupted. As we transition here to point two about how our morality is corrupted, I, I just need to say, point two is all about total depravity. The scriptures teach us we are totally depraved. The congregational reading that we read in the service earlier was getting at that idea. Not that we are as bad as we could be. I saw no fistfights breaking out before the service this morning. And I've never seen any of you fight each other to get to lunch on time. I know we're not as bad as we could be. But scripture says all of our personhood, all faculties have been tainted and affected by sin. Meaning your mind, what you think about, your heart, what you love, what you desire, what you value your will, what you choose, what you're committed to, all these facets of our heart have been affected by sin. This is why sanctification is so beautiful. God is remaking us, not just to teach you a few scriptural verses. He's changing your heart and character to look like Christ if you know the Lord. But we just saw how our worship can be corrupted. Let me just show you how our morality can be corrupted, and we'll, we'll close after these points. The second warning here is don't do what's right in your own eyes. If you do, it corrupts your morality. And there's really five different areas of corruption we see here. The first way we see is the way we're corrupted by doing what seems advantageous, but really it's just greed and selfishness. That's the first area. Doing what seems advantageous, which if you're doing right in your own eyes, how could it not? when really it's greed and selfishness. We see this in verse 2 of 17. 
Micah says to his mother, the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, the silver is with me, I took it. Why would you steal money from your mom? Why wouldn't he just ask her for the money if he's in trouble? We don't have all the details. We don't know why. Either he's waiting for her to die and that's going to be too long or he's too embarrassed because what he's going to spend the money on, he thinks she might not approve or the relationship's bad. Whatever motives he's got, he's not going to ask. He's just going to take it. But he's doing right in his own eyes as the scriptures tell us. So it seems advantageous. It's really just theft. Another person doing right in their own eyes who seems to do things advantageous to themselves is the priest in verse 10 and in, in chapter 18, verse 19 and 20. Ten pieces of silver and a suit of clothing, that sounds nice. Look with me over in chapter 18, verses 19 and 20. You've got to see the greed of this Levite in full color here. Chapter 18, verses 19 and 20. They said to him, Come with us, be to us a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be a priest to the house of one man or to be priest to a tribe and a clan in Israel? And the priest's heart was glad. He's loving that prestige, more money, more people that could like me, more influence, more authority. It seems really advantageous to him. He's just doing what's right in his own eyes. But again, that's just corrupting his morality to be selfish and greedy. And you don't have to, to turn there. But even the father in chapter 19 who gives this hospitality, the purpose of that chapter is to show you in 19 this big dichotomy between warm hospitality that has no boundaries, that keeps going, and it's food and drink and lavish fun versus the hospitality of Gibeah that's ruthless and cold and bloody and dangerous. It's supposed to contrast. But both of those people are being inhospitable. The people in Gibeah don't want to give housing because this guy's a foreigner, they think. The father-in-law wants to do hospitality, but do it on his own terms. This Levite has responsibilities to get to, but he keeps saying, nope, stick around, stick around, just stay, let's hang out, let's have a party. So again, doing what's right in your own eyes might seem like you're being hospitable to others, but is it really for you or for the person you're trying to have as a guest? Another way, secondly, our... Our morality shows corruption here is things can seem spiritual, but really it's just deception. Chapter 17, it sounds real spiritual to say, blessed be my son to the Lord, and I dedicate the silver to the Lord, but the mother is just wickedly deceived. Who told her that God would want the silver dedicated to him for carved images? Who told her that it's okay to call somebody a thief and they're cursed if they've taken her money, but the moment she finds out it's her son, no, 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 wait, 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 he's blessed. He's blessed. He's not cursed. She's doing what's right in her own eyes, so her morality flip-flops. She can't even see right and wrong. She's deceived. And so many people in this passage are deceived about God's will. In chapter 18, the tribe of Dan claims they have no allotment, which back in Joshua 19, we were told they do have an allotment, but they were driven out of the land by the Amorites. Judges chapter 1, verse 34 shows us that. They do have an allotment. They're just not defending it and taking it and trusting in the Lord. So they leave to go to the northernmost part of the promised land to go attack some quiet, unsuspecting people. And they're so deceived, their morality is so corrupted, they think they're following God's will. They're deceived. 
They even asked the priest there in verse 5 and 6, chapter 18, inquire of God, please. We want to know whether the journey on which we're setting out will succeed. Well, they've already started out on their journey. What a slick way of asking, like, is this God's will? I've already started doing this. I'll ask about God's will later after I've decided to start doing something. They can't wait. They're not patient. And then the priest, he's deceived about God's will because he just says, yep, go in peace. The eye of the Lord is on you. He doesn't go pray or do what other priests would do with the Urim, Thurim stuff. It's kind of weird. Earlier in the Old Testament, you can read about that. He doesn't seek God's will the way a priest should. He just says out of his own mind, yeah, it's okay. So the mother, the tribe of Dan, this priest, they're all deceived about God's will. They seem like they're doing spiritual things, but their morality is corrupted. Thirdly, another way our morality is corrupted, theirs is and ours is, is things can seem efficient and even powerful, but they're just violent. In 18, the way the tribe of Dan makes threats to Micah when they confront him, don't even talk about this. If you keep talking, you're going to lose your life and your whole house. That can seem really efficient. I just want to shut down this conversation because I don't have time for it. But that's corrupting his morality. He's being wicked and violent. The men in Gibeah, I don't need to belabor this point. You can see what they did to that woman and how they abused her led to her death. It seemed really efficient, like a good time. Their morality is corrupted. Fourth, another way morality is corrupted we see here is that things can seem fun and pleasurable and enjoyable, but they're just lusts. We read in 19 verse 1, in those days when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country, and he took to himself a concubine. So rather than one day encounters with people he shouldn't, he's like, I'm going to take an extra wife, a slave to myself that can satisfy my desires for children and whatever other desires I've got, and they can permanently be around me. Oh, that could seem fun if you're a Levite. This is great. I've got, a, I've got an extra concubine now. But it's just lustful. Four months go by before he pursues her. That doesn't sound like love. He didn't pursue her the next day. Four months go by. And the fun and pleasure that these men of Gibeah seem to have in verses 22 and 25 of chapter 19, you and I both know that's very degraded lusts. They said to the master of the house, bring out the man that we may know him. Instead, they know and abuse that woman till morning. So this is like a new Sodom and Gomorrah. That's how morally perverse in sexual ways it's gotten. Easy way to remember this is Genesis 19 and Judges 19. They go together. The author is showing us God's people are now becoming as corrupt and wicked outwardly as the people that God destroyed in Sodom and Gomorrah. I like how Matthew Henry said, What did it avail them that they had the ark of God in Shiloh when they had Sodom in their streets? God's law in their fringes, but the devil in their hearts. A final fifth point about how their morality was corrupted. They did things that seemed safe and rational, but it was really just cold and callous. When we do things right in our own eyes, it, it might seem safe and rational, but it's really callous. Verse 24, Behold, here my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them. Do with them what seems good to you. 
That seems rational, protect himself, put the other women in harm's way. It seems safe and rational to protect himself, but verse 25, he throws his concubine out to them. It seems safe and maybe rational and maybe even justified for him to divide her limb by limb, but imagine the, the blood and filth that would be required in doing what he did when he brings her home. This explains why there's abortion in our country. People who are cold and callous to the reality of moral death staring them in the face, they're not afraid to get their hands dirty in blood. Same reason these do here. What's so sad here is that the callousness makes us indifferent to pain and suffering. Without in any way sounding legalistic, I just want to ask you, are there any horror movies that maybe you just watched with Halloween that just went by? Or any other degrading things that you watched and you thought it was just entertainment Just ask yourself the question, can I be thankful for this while I'm enjoying it? Can I be thankful to God for this while I enjoy it? I don't know the particulars. I just know that the same logic you might have, I'm just doing what's right in my own eyes. That's what they're doing here. It doesn't seem that evil to them. So who's an authority of your morality? Who's an authority of your worship? Brothers and sisters, this is why we confess our sins to one another, so that we're not deceived like they were here. The idea that I want to close with today is that the sin that was just put on display is the same thing operating in your heart. Don't look at the symptoms of the sin. Greed, perverted worship, death, callousness, sexual perversion. Don't look at the the fruits of the sin. Look at the root of it. What was the root every time? People just doing what's right in their own eyes. Go back and review that last argument you had with your spouse or your roommate. Were you trying to just do something right in your own eyes? This chapter is showing us, apart from God's grace, when we do what's right in our own eyes, this is what happens. So praise God for any godly thought you have. Praise God for any moment Your sin hasn't gone this far, but as John Owen would often say, be killing sin or it'll kill you because every sin, if taken to its end, if it grows its head, every unbelief will become atheism. Every sexual impure thought would become what happens in chapter 19. Every selfish thought would become the greed here. The final reason God showed us all this is just to show us what happens when his grace doesn't intervene. But God's grace intervenes. The reason I don't feel depressed to get up here and share with you that today is because I know that after Judges 19, many, 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 many chapters later comes the time when Christ comes. The sinners that we just read about are no different than you in the sense that if God did not give you his grace, that's what you and I would be doing. But God sent Christ to save sinners. Jesus came incarnate and was born of a virgin and perfectly obeyed all the moral laws that God gave. He perfectly worshiped God according to everything God had said. Jesus did nothing that was right in his own eyes apart from the Father's instruction. And he willingly set himself up as a sacrifice for you. Dying on the cross... His pure blood covers all the debased things that you've ever done. 
and ever will do if you place your faith in him and realize that's where God poured out his wrath. God poured out his wrath on Christ, on the cross, so that when Christ rose again, it would prove to you and anyone else who doubted he really was God, he really did provide a sacrifice. He really is the author of life. And now Christ commands you to see that same root of sin in your heart that these people committed, doing what's right in your own eyes, and turn to the Lord and cry out, Lord, help me repent, help me change my heart. And then you make a real choice to turn from that sin. And in a mysterious way, you don't pat yourself on the back that I'm not doing those sins. You pat yourself on the back thinking, I'm so glad God put grace in this body to turn. And you turn from sin and you follow the Lord by faith and you praise him for every moment your life keeps uprooting sin. I'm so thankful that Christ died. I'm so thankful that this chapter this week has helped me realize, wow, sin wants to destroy my life. I pray that the Lord would open your eyes to how dangerous sin is. And I pray he would open your eyes to the fact that doing right in your own eyes might be the most common thing that you do. But only Christ can help you overcome that. Let's pray. Father, help us to uh, love you. Help us to, Lord, take away the doing right in our own eyes-ness about ourselves. Help us to, in humility, ask other Christians to see where are we doing what's right in our own eyes. Help us to reform our morality and our worship according to your word. And help us to bank on Christ and his gospel. Lord, forgive us for the ways that we think this chapter is just about other people and not about us. Help us to see that only because of your grace we're we're able to say we're different. Our hearts are being changed. It's in your grace alone that is greater than our sin that we sing and close our service in, in prayer to you. Help us to do that with the right heart, Father. In Christ's name, amen.